Luke Bell's become a regular on the life of try, and we pick his brain about a range of things. But what we decided to, uh, in the event of Kona being canned, we wanted to chat to him about how the face of Kona racing has changed and also how he found the heat in the Kona kitchen. Uh, he's great knowledge for that and worth listening to. want to thank everyone for giving us a listen over the last uh, 10 or so episodes. We love doing this. If you do like us, let your mates know. Uh, we're going to be cranking out more of this as we go forward. And thanks to our good mates too at Triathlon Magazine Canada. But here's Luke Bell. Let's have a conversation. Gin's the best drink going round, for I think, to be honest. So, um, okay, Luke Bell, we're going to circle back. Luke has agreed <laughs> after round one to go round two with us. Luke, uh, thank you for being on uh, the podcast. Not a worry, Phil. It's hard to escape when you're stuck inside stage four lockdowns and four walls. So <laughs> here we are. <laughs> it's just a shit show. Hey, before we start, normally um, normally I don't do this, but I'm going to do it this time. Um, I want to give a big shout out, and we'll talk about your stage four lockdown in just a moment. I want to give a big shout out to Giant Melbourne and Harry, who in a pandemic and in a lockdown at stage four, delivered a bright shiny mountain bike to my door now this was paid for before everyone starts jumping up and down we got no sponsors on uh the life of try which basically means we can say and do whatever we want um but yes big shout out to giant melbourne and and to harry um for getting that organized the guy is a bit of a genius and uh he's a well-known man about town luke of getting things done Harry's, yeah, he's a goer. He's got a big engine. He's enthusiastic. Um, he's definitely very motivated. He has got some horsepower, actually. He's he's ran like a low 15.5K, and he's got a, you know, a 20-minute power output of close to 400. Um, he's, his swim's got a little bit, uh, he's, he's a little bit of, of a moth on water, if you picture a moth <laughs> on water in the, in the pool. But if you can st- sort of link those things together, you know, he, he's the current face of a, a, an advert going around at the moment and he he self-proclaims he's feeling dangerous. Um, <laughs> I love that. But he, he does have some go. He's got some enthusiasm and it's um, it's all pretty funny and good laugh. So, yeah, it's good fun. Well, he made, a, uh, he made a group down here on the coast pretty stoked this afternoon. So thanks for that, mate, for getting that done. Also, thanks, too, to our buddies at Triathlon Magazine Canada. They are the driving force behind this one, and uh, we thank them every time that they get involved with us. They are Canadians, which means they're beautiful people. Uh, they won't punch you. They'll slap you. You'll get into a slappy fight with a Canadian. Um, and at worst, they uh, they may start saying something a little profane without being terribly offensive. We've got to love them. Yeah, they're, you know. We always come back to they're a part of the Commonwealth. Um, I always used to love throwing it around when we are in the States because no one in the States knew what the Commonwealth was. No one in the States knows what anything is at the minute. Um, that's because they're all living in Yosemite Park. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you could, if you'd written a West Wing script and handed it over a few years ago, you go, this is batshit crazy. No one's buying this but it just continues, and that's as political as I'm going to get. Shout out to all our buddies in America, uh, of which you and I have a number. Um, Good luck with what's happening over there. What's happening over here, though, Luke? Stage four lockdowns in Melbourne. It's it's quite a time. It is. 
And I guess at this current time, to be perfectly honest with you, my, my life has not changed. I really looked at I looked at stage four the other day, you know, when it was, I guess it was leaking out to the public and, you know, every second person's tending, sending a whisper or a text message saying this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And I looked at the restriction and I'm like, well, that's pretty much my life anyway. You know? <laughs> the supermarket's two blocks away, post office a block, uh, yep. the pizzas, you know, our Friday night pizzas a block away. Yeah. Um, I've had to shorten a couple of runs maybe. Um, you know, the way life's been lately, I've sort of been on swift anyway, um, trying to just tick the legs over. The outside ride on Saturday, let's be honest, is about Morty and back anyway. So I looked at the restriction. I'm like, you know, really, it, it hasn't really affected my life other than homeschooling. And I, my degree is obviously I did a Bachelor of Applied Science um, exercise science and then the phys ed on the top so teaching degree as well so there is a teaching background i give 130 percent credit to all those teachers out there at the minute because i cannot control a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old i had to think about that for a minute so um qualified, <laughs> That's yeah, right. qualified, qualified, teacher, qualified teacher and yeah credit to all the teachers out there that are running out the the online virtual schooling, it is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's a shit show. As part <laughs> of the fraternity in education now, uh, after first off the bike and numerous incarnations of myself, I returned to the education void at a real ordinary time. Let me tell you that right now. But as we see, happier days. The eight o'clock curfew. You're not even awake by eight o'clock. This is rare that we've got you awake after eight pm, though. Surely it doesn't affect you. No, as I said, my life is vastly <laughs> different from you know what are we talking three years ago or the past twenty years of my life, where I used to roll out of bed at eight thirty. I would miss Lucy going to work, and my my theory was I wouldn't start training till after nine because I'd wait till peak hour die down here in Melbourne and then it was safe to go outside and you know it's your job so it's nine to five where yeah, now it's the, pro it's, hours, the pro hours are the best yeah where now it's more um put the kids to bed it's generally and generally I'm oh we're a bit later now but generally I'll put the kids to bed at you know seven we'll do reading in bed hopefully they're asleep by seven thirty, and I try and be on the trainer you know or the you know jump on swift or something at quarter to eight, eight o'clock, um, do a quick hour of power um, and then get off and, you know, sit on the couch and have a bit of quiet time. So it's, yeah, my, my day is generally one hour of power and it's generally between 8 and 9 p.m. at night now. Yeah, perfect. Are you binging anything on the flicks? You're on that sort of get up? Are you a binger? Um, we did do, what did we get into? And we ripped through it. Um, we got into Money Heist, actually. Oh, yeah, I saw so, that. Yep. Yeah, like, yeah. It's you. You could either do the subtitles because it's Spanish, and we got onto it via Lucy's sister, who was um, living in Madrid at the time. So check it out. Good, good thing. And like any good, you know, athlete, dedicated. You know, we try yeah. and chop through three or four episodes of a night. Go to bed later than you should. Uh, <laughs> but we went the we went the English dub version. So you know, the lips weren't always in sync with what was being said, but. Yeah. You know, we got sucked in. We were into it. So that was pretty good. Yeah. And then other than that, the Jordan, you know, the Jordan doco. Was yeah. The, the I think everyone one. did that. Yeah. I um I got right in. I liked that. I, I, I enjoyed, because it was so far removed from his career too, I enjoyed it. Because when that when they are, it's kind of that, um, 
you know, when the pros, and you know this, when the pros, like the race previews for triathlon, right? Let's talk to a triathlon, put this in a triathlon context. Race previews are the dumbest things you can ever do as a triathlon journalist. They're just a waste of time. You can speculate and blah, blah, blah. But the pre-race press conferences are the most inanely boring thing you can do. Well, that, because well, you guys all sat there and give nothing away. Well, you got like on the flip side, you guys, mm. the media, would ask the same dumb questions every time. Yeah. How how are you feeling? Are you ready for the race? You know, what's your goal? <laughs> let me let me just let me just shorten that. Let's let's just go back ten years. How are you feeling? I'm feeling quite good. How's your training been? It's been amazing. What are you thinking for the race? I'm here to win. There we go. There's there's your press conference for the past twenty years, mate. <laughs> exactly and right. I'm and so I'm answering your questions. <laughs> Exactly. It's just so true. I remember the one time um, Roger Vaughan from Australia was at Kona and there'd been a little bit of a to-do between, I think, Messick and maybe Pete Jacobs at the time. I want to say maybe. My memory might serve me correct on this. And Vaughan, he's just gone straight in with the hardball because everyone tips around around that, you know, that sort of those questions. Yeah. And it took a, a and he, you know, like in, and he is a legit brilliant journo here in Australia and his questions just ripped in and everyone was just like, oh shit, who's this bloke? And I'm like, he's a legit journo. He's not one of these <laughs> triathlon journalists. Now, my, it's an easy thing. My, my thing watching the AFL football is always that, the you know, the post-game press conference and Roger's like dicky neat. You, you sort of look for him at the bottom of that that little head <laughs> popping up of, it's Roger from AAP and you're like, there he is. There's, there's dicky knee popping up. Uh, yeah, I think that the best one I ever had was was actually a post race, um, and it was actually the Ironman Australia, which I won. Um, we we had a little bit of GI issues, probably about you know eighteen k's into the run, uh, mm. which we had to put up with the remainder. And obviously, things are out of your control, um, <laughs> and they try and usher you off, uh, you know, the, pretty much just straight away, three across the line, go off to the press conference and answer all the lovely questions. And I just remember sitting there thinking, you know, you haven't let me go and have a shower or anything. Um, I just sat there and I said, look, I can smell myself. So surely you can smell me. Um, let's try and wrap this up as quick as possible, eh? And surprisingly enough, it got wrapped up pretty quick. Yeah, everyone just put the whip in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really – um, it's and it is hard though. Like I can see like the one press conference I did like in Kona one year though, and they had at the pre the pre race press conference. Obviously, they only to bring in I think the top five, maybe for um, the post. Yeah. But in the pre, there might be a few more. Yeah, like and I reckon ten to fifteen is there. I think. Yeah, I reckon they they asked the question about changing the swimsuits the year they did it. And I remember Terenzo sat at the end of the panel, and by the time they got to him, he just went, "Oh fuck it, I got no interest in answering this." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it's the same. Like one year I sat up there pre-race and you're sitting there going, like, I'm that far down the stage, I'm about to fall off the edge. Like, you know, seriously. <laughs> like seriously, the guys you want to talk to are one, two, and three from last year. Yeah. And anyone outside of that, you know, you, you just see pens down, mics down. I'm just talking to thin air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I my my the favorite person the few like in the pros who I really enjoyed talking to, um, Yourself was one because you're you never bullshitted. You just gave me straight work all the time. Um, I loved interviewing Keenler, Sebastian Keenler. He's so good. His post interview 
after Hawaii, I can still recall it because ESPN had finished with him and he was in that warm down area behind the finish line and he couldn't give a shit about some little <laughs> two-bit Australian operation. And I remember he looked at me, I looked at him, he just gave this big sigh and I said, dude, I'll do two minutes. <laughs> and he, God love him, he gave me two minutes of absolute gold and it's still up on YouTube at the moment. You can find it if you put in first off the bike and Sebastian Keenler and he just – amazing and right at the end hi to australia yeah. i was just like yes you know like the guy was amazing and the other one i really liked too and i interviewed him once and it was in abu dhabi um was faris yeah who was amazing yeah. um he was really good and then you know <laughs> the other like the maccas and the crowies and all those boys were always fun though because they always came out with stuff that you probably weren't hundred percent. Macca was always funny because he was he was like a boxer trapped in Macca's body. Yeah, just stirring the pot. I think the Germans, like I just said, Ken Leia, I think it took a you know a couple of years for everyone to catch on to his sense of humour. Mm. And again, it's and you know you go Ferris, sort of the similar. Um, it's that dry. They'll make passing comments, and it, you walk away, and five minutes later, and you sort of start laughing to yourself. Got oh, I've just clicked. I've just got it. I've just got what he said. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, those guys, uh, most of the guys in there are pretty good. Um, and I said, you know, James, I actually found Norman quite good. You know, he was, yep. he, had, he had a short fuse and he'd get, you know, Macca would rear him up pretty pretty easily. Um, but, you know, I still remember he'd just do silly things. One, I think one acceptance speech, he, he actually went through, rather than standing here going, I think it was, you know, Power Bar, Swalby, um, he was on the maybe the Kuroda at the time and, He's like, he ran through and thanked all his sponsors through a pre a post-race talk. So he's like, I had a great swim. I swam this, you know, thanks to my Blue 70. And then he went through and he's like, you know, on the bike I had seven, 18 gels. Um, thank you, Power Bar, for keeping my, you know. I had swolby tyres, unlike the other year when I threw my wheel into the lava. I didn't get it back <laughs> this year thanks to swolby tyres. And you're like, you know, that's, you know, I'll give it to you for trying to be a little bit humorous, mate. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and Germans aren't known for their humor. Nah, nah, nudity in transition, yes, but humor, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I can say that hand on heart because I have half my family over in Germany. <laughs> um, so those dudes aren't cracking smiles that often, I can tell you right now. Yeah. Hey, um, I wanted to talk to you though. The reason I, uh, you know, get you back in to the uh, the hot seat is with the with the uh, the cancellation of Kona uh, week and change. You go a couple of weeks ago. Thought we just do a little bit of a trip down Amnesia Lane in in Kona. I wanted to find out from you what you know the changing face of Kona was like, having seen it thirteen times as an athlete, um, and I, I think I covered it. I want to say nine times. Yeah, right. So, got there a number of times as well. Um, we can probably put piece together somewhat of a uh, a little look at you know the, some of the things that we saw and, and some of the things that we uh, experienced. But your very first Kona was. Uh, 2000, we were saying 2002 or three? Yeah, I think I turned, I turned pro, I think, in 2002. I was just trying to do you know, the old quick Google to find out because uh, I'm not good at those sort of things. But it was 2002 is, I think, the year I turned pro. Um, luckily enough, you know, I raced Ironman Australia as my first Ironman event um, out of university. Never done one before. Went, I think, 840 in that first one and come sixth behind Waldo. Uh, Macca won it. And yeah, we went off to Kona that following Kona. Um, and yeah, like it's it definitely it's funny. You talk about Kona and you sit there and you know I, I like to listen to other people's views on it. You know, it's the one that 
a few of us always like that. It's it's the hottest year ever. It's the hottest year ever, and and, and it and it's the windiest. You would not believe how windy it was. And you sit there going, well, well, the winds do come and go. Um, and obviously, I guess you know the past few years we can talk about you know better wind conditions. Um, yeah. But you sit there going, Hawaii is pretty close to the equator, which means you know it fluctuates. You, you you Google it, and you know. The temperature fluctuates like maybe three degrees. Like, it's not the hottest year ever. It's just, <laughs> you know, it is hot, yes, but it's relative to where you come from. Um, so it's, it's always interesting. But, and even the races, you know, the races over time, everyone talks, how's it going to play out? How's the tactics? And you're like, well, you know, ever, ever since I've sort of done, you know, the numbers are bigger and, you know, the race dynamics have changed without a doubt. And the race has got quicker without a doubt. But if you break it down to simple, simple terms, the rules were, and obviously this has changed now with some different Uber bikers out there. You know, you got your Joe Skippers, you got your Cam Worths. But old terms were, if you if you got out of the water behind the main main swim pack, you're in trouble. Yep. Yeah, um, the Harvey Express. Yep, the Harvey Express. Off. Yep. Everyone knew it was the Harvey Express. Yep. If you got out behind that, you're in trouble. You had to burn some matches early. If you got out behind the Germans, you may as well just put go, go ride to your hotel. You know, get get your park tools, pack your bike, and just try and get that first plane out because you are not back. If you're behind the Germans, your race is done. Um, there was so back in the eighties, though, right? So tell me, so before we do that, so if we look back in the eighties when it was at its, you know, not its infancy, but it was certainly getting fine tuned, wasn't it? Because Alan won it six times. Dave Scott was winning, yep. but then the Germans did sharp, and you know, Wolfgang Dietrich, Rob Mackle, those sorts of guys started swimming really well, yeah. getting a big lead and then, you know, trying to get hunted down. So there didn't seem to be the big press of pros that then sort of followed those guys once Mark Allen's reign had come to an end. No. I think if you – and I used to swim under Wolfgang when I was in Boulder. You know, I'd, What's he like as a cat? Tell me what he's like. I need to understand because, he... again, I watched him – I watched that 89 when I was a kid and – because I, I had no hand-eye coordination, triathlon caught my attention. Um, that video of 89, the bike interview with him, I can still recite word for word. Funniest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Now, Wolfgang is the most chilled, laid, laid-back, relaxed guy. Like, I, I don't know. I, our personality's got him very well. You know, I I didn't really gel with Dave. Dave was a bit too intense with me. I, I totally respect Dave. I was always a Mark fan. Um you know, Mark was intense in his own right too, but you know that maybe that's what you needed to be to win. Um, Wolfgang, yeah, as I said, I'd swim with him five times a week. I'd love swimming with him. Um, he was one of the best swimmers, and I think if you go back, um, he's actually led the Ironman for longer in, and I'm talking for in you know minutes, seconds, hours than anyone else. You know, it's just unfortunate that you know Mark or Dave used to always run him down, but he would always yeah. lead the swim, lead the bike. So you, you know, every Ironman you're talking, to, he's leading it for seven hours, nearly. Um, How hard's that too, isn't it? Like that concentration to stay on point. He'd have Mackle and those guys on his feet trying yeah. to, you know, because he was, as you said, like he was also a marked guy. Yeah, pretty impressive. The only thing that I've ever seen. Wolfgang get fired up at, um, and I think it was one Fourth of July party. We went up to his house and you know had a barbecue and you sit around and the Germans love a beer and it, Peter Kropko's name come up and it was oh yes yeah, it was like Hungarian. it was it was like waving a red flag to a bull and I was like 
wow. And, you know, I, I, I won't use the language, but I was like, wow, that's that's like the only thing I've ever seen Wolfgang go above, you know, out of one to 10, above level two on. Wolfgang's normally wow. the most chillest guy around. And then Kropko's name came up and it was like, he was out of the chair, arms are going. Like, <laughs> like Wow. Because wow. Kropko, he was a like a, a machine when he ran. Yeah. Which probably he would have been sweeping up the early leaders at some point. Yeah, I just don't think he liked, uh, I guess, his tactical way of racing, um, especially back in those days, I guess, when there was, you know, a little bit more of a an entourage of cars and trains and media and whatnot around sort of thing. Um, it was all balls to the wall, wasn't it, though? Like, when he was running and, and racing, they just ride and run as hard as – like, tactically, you could probably question that. Maybe if you rode, you know, a little bit less or in a bunch, you might run better or you'd put those in. but. There's no other way for those guys to go. And the bunches in the Harvey Express, probably a little bit smaller too. It wasn't like a huge – I mean, I remember one year in – I can't even remember the years. My my brain is as foggy as all get out with all this stuff. But I can remember leaping, leapfrogging the bunch of men and it would have been 30 long. Yeah, yeah. Like, as I said, back when I started, it was, you know, you're maybe talking – you know, 12 at max in the Harvey Express, you know, uh, it's it's one of those things. You, Peter Reid and, the, like, I'm talking back in the Peter Reid, Tim DeBoon days. Yep. Um, it was, a you know, like the Lothar leaders, even Pete Reid would generally get out of water about a minute and a half to two minutes behind him. So he wouldn't catch us until probably near Kauai High. Um, yep. You know, DeBoon was out with us. Um, you know, Brownie would be on the back of the bunch generally. So it was it was actually quite, as you said, it was quite a, a lot smaller bunch than what it is now where um, it's, yeah, it's, I think last year you look at the splits out of the water um, and there's about 30 guys um, all sort of trot through transition within one to two minutes of each other. So when you space that out, you know, you're 12 metres apart it's it's one continuous line sort of thing, but you'd argue back then it was more it'd be more exciting to watch with the way they raced because as you said it was balls to the wall and you know you had Paul Kuru who used to you know I watch my heart rate, um, but other than that people just raced you know yeah. yes yeah where nowadays it's it's power meters it's pace it's so someone would take off back in those days and you didn't know whether they'd be able to sustain it or not and to the some point even when I think I first started using a power meter in about 2004 um, and even back then you'd look around and there's probably you know four or five in the pro field that are using power meters sort of thing um, there was bugger all um, so it was it was all by feel um, you know yeah and is there something to that though like is there I remember I've a picture of Crowey racing back in the early days when he first started coming into the the long scene and he's not wearing a watch he's not wearing an aero helmet he's just running you know like it's pretty sure he got you know rid of that idea pretty quick but you know they talk about in cycling getting rid of the race radios and stuff like that and you know it would be fun wouldn't it to 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 get a Kona where all that tech is just stripped off yeah and like if you look at the race like someone takes off now and you can you, you literally look down at your power man and you're like look you know, the, the main bunch will sit at about 3.84 watts per kilo. That's the Harvey Express sort of thing. And then you have, you know, your guys, it'll be about 4.2 um, for people that like numbers, um, which are like, you know, your worst, your photos or whatever. 
So you look down, you're like, oh, you know, they're taking off. They're sitting at about 4.5 to 5 watts per kilo. That's not sustainable. So I'm just going to hold my pace and they'll come back to me. Mm. Where back then, you'd have to make a choice. You're like, oh, are they going to keep going or not? Because you don't know. Yes. You didn't know. Um, and the other thing too, which people forget is, or they get too hung up. So you, you talk to a lot of good coaches nowadays, good athletes in the past, and they use they still use how they feel. Um, because, you know, heart rate, you go back to the heart rate when that first came out. It's, it's an outcome. It's telling you yep. what your body is doing. A power meter, you know, it's telling you what is you pick 300 watts as a number. It's telling you what you are able to do at that given moment. So you're judging your race off an outcome. Pace. Pace, again, is an instant of how fast you're running at that given moment. It's not actually telling you whether your body can sustain it or is able to cope with it at that time. You know, your body may be in a state where it can't sustain 300 watts on the bike, but your race plan says, I must hold 300 watts. But, you know, there's days you wake, you know, everyone wakes up some days and you feel better some days than others. And this day, maybe you may be only able to sustain 280 watts, but if you're forcing your body to do 300, you know, everyone knows what the scenario is going to be. Yeah. So, you know, dabbling into coaching now, it's trying to get people to, yes, use technology and technology is great, but the technology is only giving you numbers, which are outcomes of your current situation in time. It's not telling you whether how you're going to feel in five minutes time. It's not telling you how you're going to feel at the start of the race. So it still comes back to, you know, Heather Fewer, um and Paul, a newbie, used to, they told me one good thing and it's every 10 minutes you do a self-check and you sit there and you go, how do I feel? What do I need? So it's like, how do I feel? I feel good. Okay. You keep ticking along as you're doing. It's like, all right, how do I feel? Oh, I feel pretty shit. Um, I'm starting to date, like check the horizon. You always knew if you're looking around Hawaii going, oh, gee, the ocean's blue today. You're like, all right, I've lost focus. So it's like, <laughs> and you're doing the swim. You're like, oh, you know, fish sort of thing. You're like, hang on, mind on the job. Um, but you go, okay, I'm losing focus. I don't feel great. Okay, how's my nutrition been? Oh, I haven't drunk much in the last 15, 20. So it's what do I need to rectify that situation and then get you back on track? Or it's, you know, how do I feel? Oh, I don't feel great. I'm suffering a bit here. Yeah, my breathing rate's up. I'm probably pushing a bit too hard. Um, I need to dial back the effort. All right, so you've rectified what you need to do to get back on track. So it's every 10 minutes. How do I feel? What do I need to do? How do I feel? What do I need to do? It's just a checklist. And so with that in mind, the the racing obviously has changed and evolved. And we'll come to – you You raised some stuff on social media this week about ITU athletes transitioning into Ironman, which I'll touch on now, but I want to explore a bit further on. But the racing itself in Kona with the bigger numbers – so you're quite capable. So there's a, there's a few dudes in in modern day try who try to take the course on. I'm thinking of Starkowitz, um, Worth, those sorts of guys. Even two in try gets involved too. That kid, he doesn't know how to stop. Um, he's always like flat out hammering it in Kona. Um, he's amazing. But there seems to be a different mentality than the other guys who sit there and they go, well, okay, I'm pretty sure I can outrun Worth. I'm pretty sure Starkwiz is going to blow to pieces at some point, even though he told me on Twitter he wasn't going to. Um, <laughs> Twitter, the shit that comes out, that guy on Twitter is unreal. He's good fun to watch, there's no doubt. But um, 
there's a reluctance to chase because you're sitting in a group of 30 dudes. Yeah, well, yeah, and again, you come back to, you, you know, you train, you train and you use the numbers as your guide and you're like, and you know yourself. It's like, if I take off now, how am I going to feel in four hours? And, you know, you've got to respect. I've always been one that you respect every person on that start list. You know, there's a reason they're there. And, you know, you take it back to the top 50. Should all 50 guys maybe be in Kona? Look, maybe when it first brought in, you know, you could say maybe 10 guys probably shouldn't be there. Um, yeah. But legitimately now you're, you're looking at, you know, the bunch is massive in 30 guys and you roll down the list and you're like, he's won this, he's won that, he's won this, he's won that. So it's it's nearly arrogance to think you can break away unless you have got a legitimate weapon. Like, you know, Kinlay's got a, he's always had a weapon, but it's been interesting to watch over the past few years where, you know, his ability to ride away from people um, has sort of not vanished, but it's come back a bit to the to the playing field. Um not and you know yes, guys have picked up bike bike legs too. But you know I still believe that his riding it's a balancing act. It's it's a balancing act of being able to swim, ride, and run as quick as you can to get the fast line as quick as you can. His bike used to be phenomenal, but his run was never great. Where now you talk Kinlay as a runner, like he ran a one o what one o nine at seventy point three worlds last year. He's a two forty runner. When he first came to Ironman and he was biking the house down, he was a mid two fifty runner. So. To run better, you generally lose a bit of muscle mass because you're carrying body weight. You know, hmm. it's it's you know simple physics sort of thing. Um, but he's you lose a bit of muscle mass and you just can't. You know, you just generally don't ride as well. So you sacrifice a little bit on the bike. But he's gained ten minutes in running. He may get off the bike now with a couple of other people, but his ability to run away from him now is you know phenomenal. Um, so it's. I've always been, as I said, a big believer of knowing your competition, respecting your competition, and you, you do your homework. Like I was, I always used to laugh at guys that they'd go, oh, into a race, oh, I don't really know who's racing or that. And you're like, well, you're the stupid idiot because this is your job. It's like if you go into a business meeting, you, you know what you're going to present and you know, you, mm. know, you know your market or your competition or what they're, they're after. It's it's your job. It's your job to do your due diligence to find out whether you know someone's been injured or not racing well, or you know go back a couple of months and see who's who's doing what, who's doing where. You know, it's we always I always laugh actually. And, and another friend put me onto it as you know you don't and he is a bit of it, I guess a little bit too. You can take it take it for what you what you will, but the, this day and age with social media is quite funny because. You know, and and I'm as good as anyone else. You 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 put out there sometimes what you think people want to see, or you know, or you round it off so it's not fully the truth. The simple way to find out what people are doing is follow their yes. follow their partner, follow their wives, follow their <laughs> because they don't realise. You know, they'll just make blase comments. Been out all day. You know, whether it be been out all day with so and so while they've done a 180k ride and a run. You know, super proud of them today. And you're like. Awesome, thank you. And you've just given me the information I want to know. Where the athlete will go, you know, I felt average today on the bike, but you know, knuckled through it. And I'm like, yeah, I know which one I'm going to believe. Yeah, follow the missus, yeah. follow the partner. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's becoming more obviously now. It's even sort of taken to that. I mean, Leado was Chris Leado was part of that sort of ex- early explorer off the front, yeah. um, and you know, gets dragged in. Of course, I watched him combust in. 
top of Polani one year. That was pretty horrible. Because um, he's a good dude. I like him. He was um, very good for the local community as well. But he is, um, that, that is a great example of knowing your competitors. I remember one year at Vineman, um, mm. I want to say he got off the lead. He got off the bike with about an eight-minute lead, I think. It was a six- to eight-minute lead. Um, we had TJ Tollinson about five to six minutes, um, and Crowey and I got off together. Um, we had a bit of a, a ding-dong battle. I think we both ran 109s, 110s that day. Um, but we are getting splits to the Lieto throughout the day, and he's pulling margins. And you're just sitting there going, oh. And, you know, it's you're weighing your bets. And we thought, you know, you go, all right, we would run a one-third. You know, you probably think, you know, around a 113. A good day you run under. A bad day, you run around a 115. And you'd bank on, say, Chris running about a 120. He might run a 118 at best. And you just do the math. Um, he got off with a bit big, bigger lead than what we thought. We ran harder than what we, we thought. But, you know, come 18K, run by Chris, pat him on the back, great race, good job, mate. Poor fella lost another race within the last minute. But it's knowing your competitors... And then it's the same in Kona. You know, Starkowitz goes off the front. You know, Phil Graves, you go back a few years. Ah, Pippi G. He was going to win it. And, you know, I remember being in a car and it was with um, Herbert, Herbert, Herbert from Slow Twitch. Yeah, And he was yeah. he was talking up. It was the year I, had, I actually had one year off Kona to watch it. And I was in the, I was in one of the lead spot cars. Yep. And I was on the course that year too in the, in the media truck. Ah, uh, you were. I did. I remember waving to you actually in the cattle. Can shoot me. The cattle truck. But I remember he yeah. talked up Phil Graves, and I'm like, "There's going to be a mushroom cloud." And I cock- <laughs> cockily said, as he got pulled in at um, Harvey, and we had to stop at the Kauai High store at the bottom of the hill. And I just gave Phil a, a little nudge in the side and said, "See, mate, there's the mushroom cloud. I can see it over Harvey now." <laughs> and <laughs> and he did not talk to me for the rest of the car ride. <laughs> <laughs> Herbert's got a very short temper. Yeah. Um, I, I remember that race too because there was a lot of hype around his race and what he was going to do. And he'd, I think he'd race well in London or in, in U, I'm in UK. Yeah, UK. The UK, <laughs> the UK climate's a little different to the Kona climate. Yeah. Um, and I always used to call Kona like dog years, like everything's amplified by seven. It's seven times the pressure, seven times the sponsor, seven times the eyes on you, all that other stuff, right? Yeah. Um, because even like the media truck, which flatbed truck driven by a local who really didn't care if you lived or died. <laughs> and literally it had sides around this flatbed truck and 20 of you would be in the back. It's a cattle truck. Yeah. It was a leg- yeah. legitimate cattle truck. Yeah. yeah. It is a complete fucking scary nightmare when they're barreling down at 70 miles an hour. And you're hanging onto the side gate, which is moving while some other German dude is going, get out of my way, I need the shot. You know, like they're giving you it wow. Yeah. But you go back years and it's it's the same. People people knew their competitors. And you go back to Jurgen, mm. like Jurgen was the same, you know, would ride off the front, people would do the math, you know, to some degree you go back Wolfgang, the same, Mackle, same. It's knowing yeah. your competitors and knowing what you can do and then like everyone talks about it being a patience patience game, you know. Ironman's a patient game, and that's that's part of it. It's trusting your knowledge, trusting your ability, having a race plan, and then the other thing in Kona is we always said that you know the, the conservative guy will generally never win it, um, and you know you may argue 
that there should be some guys that finish third a lot of times there. Um, and even in recent times, you know, there's a, there's a few guys that were, you know, that third, fourth that you think, I can't see them actually ever winning it because they actually mm. race too conservative. At some point to win a race, you've generally got to throw all your cards on the table and go, you know what, I'm all in. Um, and, you know, you, you talk to McKenzie about his year that comes second and he comes so close to winning it. It's you look around and at some point in the race you're going to go. All right, this is it. I'm I'm in. I've got to go. And you've just got to trust that and go with it and see where you end up. But if you race conservative all day, if you sit in all day, if you're just watching and waiting and waiting and waiting, you know you're going to watch the race run away from you. Macca once said to me though, which was interesting, that people who do and he wasn't alluding to anyone, I don't think, but people who go really big in a year like Hoffman's done it. McKenzie got there, you know, they've almost climbed the mountain. Yep. The following year, they train different. They race yeah. different. Don't change, they stay, don't change a thing. Yeah. Like when you were fifth, you came fifth overall in your first swing. Is that correct? Uh, second. I was, second. I, I went there. I was 16th as a 22 or 23 year old. Yep. Um, and then the next year I come back and went fifth. Yep. Yeah, right. So early in your career, you got to that point of that top. I mean, top five in Kona is phenomenal. I mean, if you people go, oh yeah, top. Five, but if you've not seen the race and understand how brutal it is, and fast and everything else, it, it really is amazing. Did you do anything different the following year? Did you get a swagger, or did you just go, well, you know what, I'll run the same thing? No, it was pretty similar. Um, the next year, I actually was unconscious uh, just through dehydration and you know nutrition thing, which has been talked about quite a bit. Um, the footage is actually, I think I just actually put the footage up, you know, a week or so ago on Insta actually had been carted off on the stretcher. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, yeah. a year or two later, I come back, I think it was two years later, I tore my meniscus the next year, uh, two weeks before and the year later, I come back and finished seventh with a sprint finish with Moreno Van Honacker in the finish down under the banyan tree. He got me by, I think, less than 10 seconds. Um, and Browning was about to Is it not a rule about that though? Is oh, it not you would have thought that? so, wouldn't you? You'd reckon it's just a mate, <laughs> like... I've turned hot corner in front of you. Let me just lap it up a bit, but it's just rude, <laughs> rude. Um, but no, the, I guess the only thing I changed was I, I raced, I probably raced more where the first year going in, you know, you're a new pro. I didn't have much money in the bank. You know, you're doing things off the smell of an oily rag. So you couldn't actually get to many races. But after the fifth, obviously you get some sponsors, you get appearance fees. So when I went to the States, I probably jumped from, you know, two 70.3s or halves, you know, whatever you, you call them, up to, you know, like eight in a season. So mm. you're actually racing a lot more. But I was a, I generally stuck to the same Kona prep. Um, you know, July, uh, July or September. Yeah, July 1st was generally about the start of when you switched on and went, all right, um, this is, I need to knuckle down and this is Kona prep sort of starting now. You're always fit, like you're always 90% there and it's more dialing in the specifics and then going from there. And there was, you know, July, August and then, you know, September, guys will, will kill themselves all the way up to race day, but you actually need to recover from the training load you've done for two months. So, you know, an eight, 10 week block, allow that absor absorption into the body, allow your body to recover from it and then you do your sharpen up. 
you know, so you sort of pick it up for another couple of weeks, sort of thing. But you'll see so guys. You're not, you're not doing you're not doing three k efforts down elite drive on the week before the race. No, or you know, you see guys doing you know thirty five forty k runs three weeks out, four weeks out, and you're like, the, mm-hmm. the training should be done now. So anyone that used to see bar, bar Tyler Butterfield, I would say, he can he can do it and still rip out an absolute ripper of a race. But yeah, generally, blind is it, Kona? Yep. If you see someone, you know. Three weeks out, still churning out. I got to do one last, you know, 180, 200k ride, run off the bike, and then Sunday, last long run. You're like, all right, you're cooked, you're done. Uh, when you add in the environmental factors in Kona as well. So I was like, yep, we'll put a line through that one, <laughs> or you know, a bit of a question mark next to one. Um, but yeah, Pete Reed, Pete Reed, and Rock Rock Fry, who coached Pete Reed and Huddle and that too, he used to always say. Yeah, your training should be done by September and then it's, you know, sharpening the sword sort of thing coming, you know, all of September into October. Because it was always, when yeah. I first started, it was the, it was on the first full moon of October, which was generally the first weekend of October. We're now, it's, I think it's the second weekend. So, you know, you could move a little bit into September, but long story short is your training should be done early. You should be recover and then you're going fresh. It's a weird and hard thing to get right. Um, so what makes someone like Fredino dial it in so well? Like what what do you think? And we'll then switch into our conversation with the ITU. But what gives him, I mean, I think he's the, now that Crowey's kind of moved to that more of a part-time-ish kind of setup, I used to think Crowey was the pro's pro. He was the best prepared pro we ever saw, I think. Um, and now obviously he's a lot different. A lot more, you know, but I think Fredino is the best pro in the world. How does he keep getting to that point though? How does he, how does someone like that just find the right lane to sit in for that? Um, just like it's, well, one is a freak. So one, one, you've actually got to have the genetics. You know, if you don't have the yeah. genetics, you're not there to start with. Like, I don't care how well you train. Some people, you know, you've just got to pull the nasty one and go, look, you're never going to make it. You know, maybe take up yeah. badminton. I don't know something that's. We'll go to a cooler race. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, so he's got the genetics, um, and then it's he ticks boxes. He's very professional. Um, you know, I guess something I was always worried about over my career, which I knew hindered me, but I just you know always struggled to change it. Was I'm a glass half empty person, um, and that's just me. Whether it's growing up in the country or whatnot, where other people are gla- or you know glass half full. I think it helps to be a glass half full person. You're looking at positives. You're trusting yourself. You're trusting your ability. Now, he trusts. He trusts his training. He trusts his support network he's got up. Um, like he doesn't care what anyone else is doing. He knows what works for him, and he trusts that process. And then you know when you can travel with a physio, you can travel with a cook. You can, you know, focus on recovery better. It's you know everything's geared to be that ultimate performance. Um, and, you, you know, people can argue, yes, he's lucky enough to do it, but he's the one that made the gamble early days to do that, to make it. So it's like, what come first, chicken or the egg? It's like, you know, he's got the money to be able to spend it, to do the aero testing, to have the best products, to do this. And I'm like, yes, but he made that choice to do it years ago and it's paid dividends now. Um, but, you know, without his mental capacity as well, of being able to push himself, you know, as I said, the, the positive side of trusting his ability and what he's done. Um, yeah, he's, it's, you know, we talk about him being the complete package and male or female will, will agree. He's a good-looking dude. He's got a big engine. 
and he does he ticks all the boxes to make sure that you know if he gets beaten race day he's done everything in his power to win that race he doesn't strike me as a dude who does junk miles or you know fucks around at training a lot well I think he, I think he does, but there's a like like everything. There's a time and place for it. Like if you look the other day, him and Nick Castellan, who's you know an Aussie kid that he's had as his training partner yeah. for years, they did a, hot, a ride and ride and hike. You know they they ride their cross bikes up a mountain and you know ran up a mountain on a trail. But does he need to be specific and dialed in now during COVID when there's not many races on the horizon? No. So I think he's just time and place, and when it comes time to switch on. He just really switches on, which is, you know, it's what you need to do. Peter Reid was very similar. Like Peter Reid would turn into a hermit. Um, you know, he used to go and do training camps out of Kona. He'd stay up the volcano above town. He'd take his cat, who's he's fond of his cat. Um, he'd stay up <laughs> at a at a, um, at a a nunnery, I think it was. He'd just rent a one bedroom apartment up the nunnery, up at about eight thousand feet, up at the volcano. Yeah. He'd travel down every day. Um, he'd train, he'd go back up there and do a two-week block there, then he'd fly back to Canada, recover, fly back to the race and race. And, like, it's your job. Like, and Crow was the same. Like, he realised, Mac was the same, this is this is your job, and I tried to always treat it that way too, is, you know, it's it's work. Um, so it's, you could you could argue that, you know, through my career, I, I probably did some extra races of that, whether it be appearance fee or that too, but, you know, my argument was is I'm not in it forever either and it is work and I need to make money. So it's, you know, a double-edged sword. Maybe I should have had some better, more consistent results in Kona. Um, But then the other side there too was, you know, I was happy with my fifth and my seventh. You know, I had a 13th, I had an 18th, I had a 20-something, I had a 60-something, I had a way back. But my first year in Kona, I went there to get my finishers medal. Every other year yeah. from then on, I went back there to try and get top five. And yeah. that, that was it. It's you race to get five. Some, sometimes, you know, as I said, I was, I was sick. One year I had a torn meniscus in my knee, which I did two weeks before the race. Um, we drove back from Queensland. I did a foot turn in the Newcastle swimming pool and they just polished the edges. I slipped, did the splits, and instantly I, I had to be carted out of the pool. Um, got back to Melbourne, had scans, torn meniscus. I tried to get through it, didn't happen. Um, I went there, got sick one year from travel, got diagnosed with the onset of pneumonia, um, just really bad chest infection. Um, got, remember, I, I still got out of the swim. I was behind Lieto. I was the last man on the swim pack. Um, I always got out with the, that main swim pack. And that year, I just remember going, oh, this hurt way too much. And I think by 60Ks, sort of my, my race was done. Other years you try different things, but as I said, I was always willing to take a risk to try and get a good result. So some years it paid off, some years it didn't, but I got my finishes medal and every other year I went there to get top five. And I guess as a pro too, like age groupers want the medal. They, they, and again, I've long said this out of the, you know, 1800 age groupers or whatever it is, it really is only a world championship for a thousand of them. There's a lot of tourists there who... And if we're being serious about it being a legitimate world title, you, there wouldn't be things as roll downs and things like that. Yeah, hundred percent. You just you just get your spot based on time. But in saying that, the sport was set up by adventurers, by athletic adventurers. So there is a real connection between that, and and, and I get that. But there's a thousand people, I reckon, or eight hundred people who are going out for a world title, and it certainly you know 
they get the medal. The pros, when you guys go, if you go there and blow to pieces and go, you know what, fuck it, I'm out. I'm done. I'm walking off the course. I'm done. And everyone goes, oh, you've got to finish. And it's like, well, here's the thing, man. I'm here to race. I'm here to do well. I don't need the finishers medal or the T-shirt. I'm coming in. Again, a lot of the age groupers get, get salty at the – the pros who pull the pin on stuff, but don't realize, like you said, if I pull the pin and don't have to run a marathon because I'm completely blown, I can back up and do a late season race maybe and, and, and try and salvage something. I mean, it's a, it's a delicate sort of game, which affects people's mentality, which affects the race because people are going, well, I'm not going to win this. I'm in 30th place. I'm out the back or I'm going to go to, I explode because I don't care about a medal. Yeah. And and that comes back to it. It's your job. Um, and it, yeah. it's not to be rude, but everyone else, good, 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 bad, ugly day, whatever. You go back to work Monday morning and you still got your regular fortnightly paycheck. Um, you know, a lot of the guys, it's, you know, and, and all my career, you know, you, you'll have your sponsors, um, you have your, your base salary, you know, it's, you think of say a salesperson in society, they'll have a base salary and then they work off performance bonuses. Racing was no difference. You have your base salary, which, you know, was your, you generally get it monthly stipend or, you know, however the sponsors want to do it. They could do it quarterly. Um, but then, you know, that was enough. That was, you know, you, you'd live comfortably and it was enough to live off. Um, but to make a, a decent living, to, you know, to be able to, whatever, buy a house at the end of your career or during your career, and, you know, um, it's, you needed to make sure you capture bonuses. And then if you capture bonuses, your next year contract would grow by, you know, 10 to 15, 20%. So you tried to do everything in your power to cap your bonuses, one, to make money, but then two, to ensure that your next year's contract was bigger again. So you're continually earning more money. So that meant if you're outside, like you'd get bonuses for, you know, realistically top five. I think now a lot of the guys will have top 10 in Kona. Um, But if you're 11th, it's a lot of pain, you know, to to get nothing. You've got no paycheck because they paid a tenth. You get no bonuses, and you know, as we said, Shorto used to talk about it as an expensive holiday. Is why he never used to go and race there much. But you're doing the map, and most of the time, you can swim well, you can ride well, you can run up to probably about 21 k's. But if you commit past 21 k's, you're doing damage. Um, where you know, if you get to Kona as a prime example. And you pull out before that 21k mark, you can generally recover and you'll see, and that's why Arizona will be stacked because it's about a month later. So you, you take, you know, a week or two downtime recovery. Mentally, you know, you let the race process of a bad race. You flip it around, you freshen up, you do a few sharpness sessions, and then boom, you're at Arizona. Um, so you, you find Arizona is always stacked. Cozumel the same. Um, Busso was a little bit different because it was generally six to eight weeks. So you actually had to do a bit of training, which took a bit of juggling because you yep. could overcook things very easily. You come back and you do one or two weeks of decent training in there so you don't lose too much. But if you slightly overcook it, you know, you, and, and I've done it numerous times, I'd get to the six-hour mark in Busso and it'd be like someone's pulled the PowerPoint out on you. You're like, ooh. <laughs> And you're like, yep, I've cooked it in that two to three weeks of where I did a little bit of training sort of thing. But, you know, yeah. you're going there to try and, yeah, again, get get your bonuses, top it up and make sure year's end, you know, you've capped out your bonuses. It's work. So uh, the ITU guys who've come across, 
And, you know, when they first, I remember watching Fredino in o- in Auckland one year at the 70.3 and just the way he went about the swim, because obviously tacking on 400 extra metres is not a heck of a lot no. from the usual 15. He just went to town. And I know we've sort of spoken a little bit about him, but what he brought, and again, I mean, I look back though and I look at the greats like Alan and Welsh and those boys all won ITU world titles and Kona titles. Yeah. So it's nothing new, right? No, Welchie is the only guy that has won a world title at every distance as far as I know. So he's won world duathlon title, world long course title, Hawaii title, and you know, ITU sort of thing. So he's, he's ticked all the boxes. Um, but no, it's nothing, nothing new. Like, yes, back then, you know, Mark Allen, you go back to the International Grand Prix. So we're talking, you know, Macca's, you know, um, Super League at the minute is, you know, a revamped version, an updated version of like, you know, the Tui's Blue Series, which we all watched on TV in the 90s, which grew into the International Grand Prix. And, you know, you throw names around like Mike Pig. Um, Mike Pig raced Hawaii. A lot of people wouldn't know that yeah. because he mainly focused on the non-drafting Olympic distance races in the U.S., and he was now he raced away. He actually painted the shoes, the soles of his shoes, white, so the reflection off the road wouldn't make him hot. There's 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 a fact for you. Um, <laughs> Jesus, but, but you go he back. Was, um, but he was unstoppable in the USTS races, right? Like the guy was unbeatable. Yeah, you hear Miles talk about him, um, and yeah, he he was a weapon. Like he was in the sprint finish, you know, or down to that last few before Miles took off on him at that world title on the Goldie. Um, yeah, which back. was him, Rick Wells. And again, if you go back to this podcast, we had Miles Stewart on and he spoke about that and it was him, Rick Wells, Pig, and he just knew he had the kick. He kicked like a mule, Yeah, Miles Stewart. Unbelievable. But Pig was unbeatable, even with that pink disc with Pig Power <laughs> written on it and the, you know, the Avenir helmet a la Dave Scott. The guy was money because the JT sunglasses too were just out of this world. Um, yeah. But the then he went to Kona. Did he race Kona the year that uh, Molina won it? Oh, I couldn't tell you the year. Um, I reckon like, he was out. I reckon he was out with him. But you go back still, even in the Australian history. You know, Greg Stewart was a phenomenal triathlete. He went to Kona. Um, a lot of people don't realise that Tim Bentley actually raced multiple times in Kona. I think Tim Bentley finished about fifth. Fifth or sixth mm. in a Y, which you know everyone just saw him as two is blue Olympic distance, you know, triathlete. But all these guys have been stepping, and that, you're talking then like late eighties, early nineties. Um, when I first started, you know, it was um, the guys come through like the, the year I passed out, I was riding with Simon Lessing. Um, now, is you know, name me a person that's going to argue with you and say Simon Lessing wasn't one of the greatest ITU athletes of all time. You know, world titles, he was the only one to challenge Mark at Nice, um, you know, multiple Olympics. Like it's, you know, he's yeah. a phenomenal athlete. And that's back, you know, early 2000s as well. And, you know, as, as I said, I, I put up, and I was more just out of interest. It was a, a pretty solid list of athletes that it was like, yes, the race has changed. Yes, the race has got quicker. But if you're saying the ITU guys are the ones that have stepped up and changed the race, then my argument was no, is it's just natural progression through the distance. Um, and, you know, I was actually interested because I only really focused on the male, obviously, so I didn't want to be sexist. Um, so even even before we, you saw Chad tonight, I went back and had a look at the females. And 
it is a little bit different. Um, you go back to 2000, and I think the only two on the 2000 Olympic, and we're talking, you know, only Olympic start this year, it was Joanna Zyger and Michaela Jones that sort of followed yeah. on and stepped up. Um, and then you go 2004, there's like Sam Warriner, uh, Zellan Kova, Kate Allen, Julie Gibbons, and Jodie Swallow, or, you know. So the list... Was Karen Smyers in that as well, though? No, Karen Smyers so raced. she was pre... Uh, she was ITU, and she won an ITU world title, but yeah. that, I want to say that was in the 90s. But then, yeah. you know, on these lists that are that are absent, like, would you argue that, you know, Rennie wasn't... wasn't You wouldn't class her as a great ITU athlete. She raced ITU. She was, you know, junior programs and raced World Cups and that for Australia. But would you argue she was a great ITU athlete? Maybe, you know, I'd say no. Um, but was she very dominant in Ironman? Hell yeah, she's one of the best ever. Um, but, you know, she went through a year. Um, these lists, are, you know, Leander Cave is another one that's, you know, that's come through ITU as well. You know, 2012, you can even go, you know, from London. So that's not that long ago. Um, no. you got Riveras that did Busso the other year, Hallie Fredrickson, um, Annie Hoog, who's now obviously, you know, quite well known, Radka, you know, married to Stixie now, Danielle Reef, Laura Bennett and Sarah True. Like these names are just natural progressions. And as I said, you can go back from Olympic to Olympic to Olympics and you get athletes that have stepped up and you generally know the ones that are going to make it and the ones that are don't. I've raced Simon Whitfield over 70.3s who won, you know, Sydney Olympics. Um, there's some some long lists there. Um, so, that yeah, the packs are bigger. There's probably more guys. As the sports become more prominent, um, obviously the fields have grown, competition gets better. As I said, it's natural progression. So more guys are going to, more guys and girls are going to, once careers are ended, go, okay, we can move along to Ironman. And obviously there's a better living in Ironman nowadays than probably, you know, back in the day where you used to have to cover everything. Um, but, you know, you can argue that some of the guys that come across, you look at them, you're like, yeah, I actually can't see. You're a very fast runner, and if you look at times, it's mm. eight hours compared to an Olympic distance, which you say two hours. So it's you know four times. Yeah. So you go take that to an athletics track. Do all ten thousand meter runners become good marathon runners? You know, you're talking a half an hour event through to a two hour event. No. You know, Gabriel Celesi stepped up. There's definitely a few that stepped up, but probably you know eighty percent of them never really become great marathon runners. It's not a guarantee. Were they good at running 10,000? Probably, yeah, they had speed, but did they have the strength endurance to step up? Maybe not. Go into a pool and, you know, you go, say, do, and it's not, I guess, not as prominent in a pool, um, but you go do many 1,500-metre swimmers, you know, a 15-minute event, go around and do, become five and five and 10K open water swimmers. no. No, they don't. Once their career in the pool is finished, you know, their careers are, are sort of done. So it's not a guarantee that you're going to be great stepping up. And I use those two sports mainly because they're individual sports where cycling's a yeah. bit more dynamic. You've got it's it's hard to pick a cycling event and say, look, this is a natural progression. But if you, you look at time, you know, a quarter of the time of the, the Ironman event and, and break it back to other events, then you go, Well, yes, yeah, some athletes are naturally going to be going to be able to step up and some aren't. Um, it's evolution and progression. Yeah, and that's essentially, essentially like it's it's generational too. You know, there was almost that time where they became very strictly. Um, they would they would chop all the time, as we said, the Welshies of the world, and then they kind of got to that point where they were really, um, you know, 
focused on just their craft and they sort of stayed away and then drifted back in. And then now it's just, it's just part of the course. You race ITU and at some point you'll jump ship and try and go longer. Generally not an Olympic year or in that cycle, they try and veer off that, um, you know, and it gives them something to do for a couple of years before they get back into ITU world. Cause as you said, certainly quite lucrative in both, but mostly, um, you know, it's, it's Ironman. People sort of talk the Ironman and the long distance, even though you've got things like Super League coming in and you've got ITU, which allows you to race a lot more. And that's the one thing that Ironman suffers and struggles with is because you race a 70.3, what's the recovery off the back of that? I mean, you know, Terenzo a few years ago showed us that you could do back-to-backs, but it's not like it's a PGA where you could do 20 events in a year. No, no. And it's, you know, you look at the ITU and their their prize breakdown, I think they pay, you know, top 20, where most 70.3s, by the time you get to fifth, you're walking away with, what, $1,000 US, maybe $500 US at summer events if you don't pick the big ones. Um, Yeah, yeah, and recovery is obviously athlete to athlete dependent, but you know, you're doing a handful of races, but then, you know, the flip side too is you see the, and, you know, it's human nature too. You you look at the top guys, it doesn't matter what sport, what industry you look at, you look at the top guys and you go, wow, you know, they're making a great deal of money. And you can, mm. everyone loves to rattle off figures about how much everyone knows. And it's always interesting to to listen and know because, you know, obviously you've been in the field, so you know what contracts realistically are, how they work, you know, what the ins and outs are. And, you know, the top guys and girls are making an amazing living off it. But mm. you move down um, where you go to ITU and it's very federation control and ITU control. So you can't, you know, you look at their jerseys, for instance, is the easiest one. It's visual. Most people will be able to relate to it. Is you've got your name and you've got your country on there. And then I think it's unless your sponsor is greater than ten or $15,000, you're not allowed to have a logo on your suit. And if it is, then it's restricted. Obviously, the size is very restricted. I remember doing one race deals for a hat, for a logo on a hat. Um, and then the, the other side is we've got no restrictions on suit size and, um, you know, names, logos. So... You know, in the States, obviously, we're on the opposite side of the road. So the, the left side of my jersey would be worth more than the right side of my jersey because you guys in the cattle truck are generally on my left and taking photos from my left. So anything on the left side was worth more than the right side. <laughs> it's unreal. And then the butt, you know, you, you do deals and, you, and it, was, it was a pretty funny one to do because you do sponsorships for, you know, you go, look, I'll give you for whatever amount of figure. I'll give you my entire butt. You can slap your logo on the butt. I reckon the only time, what's the only image that you remember of a logo on a butt? Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah. I can give you one really good one that got used a hell of a lot, and that's about it. And that was Dave no, Dave Scott crossing the line with his arm up in the air and its power bar on his butt. Yeah, right. And, and other then, than that, again, when when yeah. when are you ta- like you you was in the industry for so many years in the media? When do you take a photo of someone's butt and post that as a photo? Never. No, nah. that makes no. It's not a good photo. No, nah, unless. But to sell it to a company, you go. I can give you a logo this big. You can have my entire yeah. ass, and they go amazing because that's a really big logo. But that's like putting a logo down a side alley on a billboard that's you know facing a dark corner. Like, it's, yeah. it's not going to happen. So, yeah, 
you know, different logos, different positions, they're all worth different prices, which you can't do in ITU. And unless you're getting government funding, bike sponsors generally, you know, the, the deals were never as good because you're lost in a pack of 60. Um, running shoes, again, it's, you know, you just don't get those individual photos or the, you know, con- mm. say you use Hawaii, those iconic landscape photos of someone running yep. along with the lava in the background, the silhouette of one person in frame. ITU, it's a scramble generally within a city of 60 guys. You know, I think that when I first went to the States, it was it was Murphy, Ryan Schreiber, who was my manager, who was well cheese, Paula's, you know, blessings. Oh, he's a legend. Yeah, yep. every, sort of everyone, more world titles and more Kona titles than probably anyone else. Um, he said, all you, all you Australians... Are, are, are like Kenyans. He goes, you all turn up to the same. And back then, we used to all come over there and we're all wearing Orca race suits. He goes, you know, the, the silver, the silver, white and black. Um, yeah, I remember those yeah, ones, yeah. yeah. And he goes, you all turn up, you all win races, but we can't tell one of you from the other. He goes, you're just white Kenyans. And that stuck with me. And for ever, ever since then, if a sponsor ever wanted to do something out of the normal, whether it be a bright coloured kit, a design of that, and you're like, yep, I'm all in, let's do it. So, you know, Zoot for one year did those race suits, a different race suit for every year. What did it guarantee? It guaranteed me I got my photos in magazines um, and photos are worth a hell of a lot. So as long as you kept racing well, you get your name in the print, you get your bonuses, you get your payments, and then a photo guarantees that you, you know, you're on the whether it be the front page, a big page, or, or, or a big photo, um, mm. because that gets the sponsor a hell of a lot of coverage too. Your name, your yeah, name doesn't plug. Your name in a result sheet doesn't tell you, or doesn't help your sponsors, but a big ass photo that looks pretty <laughs> cool will. And that's a thing too, though. Like I, I can remember helping out a few pros across the time with just people I knew and. You know, they say what they're like, and I say, well, they swim like a fish, or they, you know, they ride the house down, or they swim well. If they swim well, they, the first thing they're going to do is pull their wetsuit down. Yeah, that photo out of the water yeah. of them with the wetsuit down their waist, you know, and it'll be the caption: Luke Bell leads out of the water. Everyone's going to see that photo because you're the first dude out. Yeah, there's currency in that. But as you said, no one's standing behind you as you leave T one. No, they're all in front. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems, and again, the economy of scale, of course, the more exposure you get, which again, you know, we sort of talk about the, you know, the bullshit press conferences and stuff, but it was a like, like it was like politicians and, and media. They need them, they need, and 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 you know, they need each other, and and it's very similar because, you know, when we had a publication that had X amount of eyes on it a, a month, and we were able to parlay that, and you were able to tell your sponsors that you're in this magazine or you were on this website that had this many things it makes sense and it's a commercial deal that is, is relevant. Yeah. And it's the way you go about things too. It's that, you know, we, we always used to call it the, the NASCAR shirt. So, and there's, you know, there's still <laughs> guys that run it, guys and girls run it today, that full, you know, you have your, your polo T-shirt with your collar and you just run your sponsors left and right from yep. top to bottom down. And you're like, logos just get lost within logos. And one, you look like a NASCAR driver and, you know, Triathlete, it's you, you don't see Frodo do it, you don't see you know Sebi doing it, you, don't, you know, you don't see Reef doing it. They 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 promote their sponsors in a professional way. It's not, you know, I'd like you know, it's very sunny today, lucky I've got my ugly, ugly eyewear on. You know, it's they just do it in a subtle way rather than just going bang, 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 bang. 
And then, well, yeah. didn't Sky Channel Sky Channel picked it up too with the cycling team? You know, they got rid of all the the Italian kits in the eighties. Were like that? They yeah. were a joke. Yeah, you couldn't see shit. And then Sky goes, you know what? We're going to put a name down the side, and we're going to put Sky on the front, and that's it. Yep. And one and one looks tell- one looks classy, one looks cheap and nasty. Yeah, to tell you who the best <laughs> the best triathlete I saw sponsored, and and this is outside of Frodo because obviously he's just minted up and, as he should be. Um, Courtney Atkinson. Yeah. He'd run Red Bull, Qantas, massive airline, and Subaru. Yeah. That's all he'd run. And you go three really distinct logos, all working in conjunction with each other, but not crossing anyone. No. And again, this is something, you know, I was lucky enough to pick up on too. And again, it's the same. I just, you know, like everyone, you have a small core group of friends that, you know, you have around you for your whole time. Um, and we used to discuss it all the time. And again, I go back to Peter Reed. You know, I was a big fan of Peter Reed. I liked the way, and Tim DeBoom for that that matter. Um, yep. I got on really well with them, I respected them, and I liked the way they went about things. But Pete, we always, and we always used to laugh at, you know, the guys with the NASCAR set up on their race kits or whatever. And you'd stand there and you're like, you know, that guy with all the logos is, you know, struggling to get by. And the guy with three logos on his kit is earning the most money. So from then on, it was, you know, the guy, the most successful guy has the least amount of logos. Pete Reed, for his nearly his entire career, had Reebok, Powerbar, and Specialized. Yeah, that was it. That's yeah. all he had on his kit. And then you see other guys running out of two two, and as you said, it's from, you know, top to cock, you know, logos sort of thing. <laughs> it's. Yeah, it's it's never ending, and you're like, wow, this is just a like an ancient yeah. scroll. And you, but yeah, you know, I get a free gel from them. I get twenty percent discount from them. You know, I've yeah. you know, but you know, the guys guys and girls with the least amount of logos are generally the ones that are doing the best. Well, and the and the um, you're right, and and you want more significant. And again, in in the the reason why like the Australian triathlon media has fallen completely like blew up was because there was that multiple share of voice. Everybody was buying 3%. Nobody was tipping in the big dollars to keep things afloat. And so triathlon multi-sport magazine fell over. Australian triathlete magazine fell over Two twenties, kind of, you know, first off the bike, we sold out because we got an offer and we said, fuck it. We might as well cash in on this because there's some equity and there's some money here. Um, why wouldn't we, when we got a nice offer and thought, you know what? great we can do this um but the rest all kind of fell over and and it was all because of that you know the triathlon industry was trying to support athletes like you guys and then trying to go okay well how do we reach the age groupers and then there's only so much money and without television rights and without all that other infrastructure that the bigger sports have the sport in this country anyway fell over i mean lava magazine in the states fell over trying to maintain anything long. I mean, hats off to wits up and what Steph Hansen's doing with that because that's still up. Um, but as we had her on the podcast as well, and she said that there is a month to month thing sometimes, you know, it's extremely hard and we're not even on the front page. We, we are the front page, but we're not putting on the show. Good journalists are the ones who report and give a good account, but it's not our show. Yeah, It's your show. I can't imagine right now too, how tough it is for pros in this climate with no racing going on, no magazine covers, nothing other than social media to keep, at least they have that to keep them amused. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, it's, you know, obviously it's a unique time. Um, but like you go back and you talk 
say sponsorships and presenting and the other thing that Murphy you know drummed into me from an early day too and I, I brought this up um, you know the other day it, it came up on social media somewhere and I was my reply was you know athletes need to know their worth you always need to know your current market value you know it's again it's business know your own value and and what you believe and you need to be honest with yourself this is where there's no point you know BS in yourself and talking yourself up because you need to know your worth because that's going to predict how what sort of sponsors and dollars you're going to get. Obviously, that fluctuates. You know, the years I had good years in Kona. You know, my good years were probably from 2003 to 2012. Realistically, probably my career. Um, you know, that was my window when everything was firing pretty well, and then injuries, ups and downs, and you know, family creeps in and all sorts of things. Um, but you know, at those years, I knew my market value, or I trusted Murphy, my manager, who was my manager for and or PCH Sports for 15, 20 years. Um, I trusted them. I remember as a 23 year old going over there, I'd worked in the bike shop here, I'd saved up $5,000, I got a plane ticket to the States, and that was my, mm. my, my game plan was when my five grand runs out, I get on the plane and come home. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that was literally the game plan. Um, mum and dad were in Portland, you know, I definitely didn't come from a trust fund or anything. Um, so it was go over there. I had a couple of good races and I remember at the time I, I looked up with, I hooked up with Murphy and my first year when I first met Murphy it was in Kona and I'd finished 16th on my first, you know, scrawny little Aussie 22, 23. And we're in the lift going up to the same hotel and he come in and he's like, you're happy with your race? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. I got to race with them and Pete and, you know, Thomas Hellregal. And he's like, yeah, where'd you finish? And I'm like, oh, 16th. He goes, yeah, not bad. How many times have you been here? I'm like, no, no, first ever, second Ironman. And he goes, oh, not bad. He goes, all right. Well, when you get a good result, come back and see me. I was just like, boof, there goes the balloon. Um, (laughs) Obviously, the next year in the States, you know, we we hooked up and, you know, he was my manager ever since and it's just Murphy's sense of humour. But I remember the first deal, we were talking to Pearl Azumi in the States and the deal come through and I was like, wow, you know, this is US dollars. We're at 58 cents in the dollar. I'm like, hell yeah, let's, you know, let's take this now. He's like, nah, I'm going to knock him back. I'm like, nah, nah. Um, And in the end, he's like, do you trust me or not? And you sit there and that's where you have to take that step. And you're like, yeah, well, you know, you're the expert in this field. And then you look at the list of athletes he's had. And I'm like, all right, I'm I'm looking like the jackass here. I'm like, yep, you do what you got to do. And come back with about three times the value sort of thing. He goes, this is where I know your value. um, And I will always pitch because obviously if I get more money for you, I'm making more money. So it's win-win. So from that moment yeah. on, it was, it was very much you learnt your market value. Some years you had to take pay cuts um, and that's just the way it was. But you had to realistically look back and go, look, I probably haven't had a great year this year. I understand that, you know. I've got to take a cut in my contract. That's And that's the way it is. You take the good when it's good and you've got to suck up the bad when it's bad. But it, the athletes that over time start undercutting each other, so you know your market value but you're like, oh, I I'm going to take this for less. All of a sudden, you've devalued yourself straight away. So your new current market value is just that new offer you accepted. And if you keep doing that, all of a sudden, you're in a climate where your market value is not worth very much at all. And it's hard to go back up. 
Absolutely, isn't it? It's all, I mean, and at the moment it's hard to go anywhere because unless you've got a good, strong social media community, um, you've got nothing to hang your hat on. New pros have probably got stuff all to hang their hat on. Yeah, see, I, this came up the other day, actually. I was talking with um, one of the head guys from Triathlon South Australia. You know, obviously we have, you know, working for Tribic now, we have, you know, talks with other, and we got onto this um, and pro athletes struggling and what, and I said, you know, the, the top guys are fine um, because they've got their contracts, you know, you're not, no, you're not capping out your bonuses, but, you know, you're still paying your mortgage fine without an issue. You're still, you know, you're still going and getting your coffee every day. Um, the new the new pro athletes, you know, my argument was they're still doing okay as well because generally they've got part-time jobs at the moment to be able to fund trying to become a pro. It's the guys in the middle ground that, have decided to go all in professional yeah. and have got a couple of, you know, a couple of sponsors that are paying, you know, a few grand here and there, but it's not enough to fund a lifestyle that are ones that are going to be in trouble because they've gone all in. They've got sponsors they've got to commit to. They've got no jobs. So it's the top end and the bottom end, I actually think will come out of it okay. It's, yeah, you, you, you sort of feel for the guys that are in the middle because they're going to have to make a decision, you know, you're assuming pretty soon. Yeah, it's going to it's going to lose some people from the sport, that's for sure. And buddy, we've gone well and truly over the time. I'm going to get in so much trouble for this one. Um, we've got- Kevin will be fine. Oh, Kevin, <laughs> nah, Kevin it's good. Fine. It's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. You're mate, it's always always a pleasure though. The insight you bring to this joint is uh, is first class and uh, obviously we love hearing this because um, you know, you are honest as per usual. It's been a Always a pleasure, mate. Always fun. And uh, we look forward to uh, circling back in a few weeks' time uh, and getting you back on again and killing another hour. Sounds good. Six weeks I've got. Six weeks of four walls. And five-kilometre <laughs> five radius. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thanks. <laughs>